In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's be seated. There are some Sundays when the scriptures uh, can be read, proclaimed, heard, and they they kind of stand alone and and need no commentary. Um, Today's scriptures are different, I think. Uh, Today's scriptures are a little tricky. They can do damage, I think, if we simply listen to them, sing a few songs, say our prayers, and go on our way. These scriptures can seem to describe a, a sort of ideal faith, a faith that at our best we might pray for, and yet in our heart of hearts, We know that most of us will never have that sort of faith. And so our scriptures, on a first hearing anyway, instead of being encouraging and strengthening, they can sound intimidating. They can sound discouraging. In the reading from Micah, we hear God's disappointment. We hear God's heartache at having been let down by his people, by God's own beloved, in words that will return again as we pray through them on Good Friday, God asks, O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. On and on God goes. What are we to say? What are the people of faith to say in response? God doesn't make it easier. Saying we're sorry won't be enough. And simply offering prayers of penitence or offering works of charity won't wipe the slate clean. And instead, God says, here's what the Lord requires. Do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Those are lovely thoughts. I've received them on greeting cards before. But they're not so easy to do, are they? In a world in which we're so seldom in charge of much of anything, we have bosses and superiors and people in authority over us. We have political leaders not chosen by the majority. And so it becomes very personal all of a sudden. How do I do justice? How do I love kindness? How do I walk humbly with God? It's a question I'll live out the rest of my life, but I'm not sure how close I ever get to actually being that person. The psalmist is honest in asking another version of the same question. Lord, who may dwell in your tabernacle? Who may abide upon your holy hill? When the answer comes back, it offers little solace. Who can dwell in God's tabernacle or abide on the holy hill? Well, whoever leads a blameless life and does what is right, who speaks truth from their heart, there's no guile upon their tongue. They do no evil to their friend. They do not heap contempt upon their neighbor. And so which of us is that? If we're to follow the psalmist to his own conclusion, then the honest answer is to admit that there are probably very, very few people dwelling in the tabernacle and almost nobody on God's holy hill. 
One needs to be pure and holy and loving. Lucky for us, we're not the first people to notice this difficulty in the scriptures. (laughs) We're not the first to notice the impossible demands of holiness and wonder what we're supposed to do. Remember that the Episcopal Church comes from the Church of England, and out of the various impulses that created the Church of England, a big one is the Protestant Reformation. And so Martin Luther and John Calvin and Martin Bootser and many others wrestled with this very idea. How do we aim to be God's holy people in a sinful world, so often falling victim to the most sinful aspects of this world? An enormous goal of the Reformation then and continuing has been to try to break down any distinction between the very holy people, or perhaps the professionally holy, and every one of us. Theologians have tried to reach back into the scriptures to remind us all that that all of the faithful people are called saints in scripture, not just a few holy ones. These same scholars try to renew the biblical idea of the priesthood of all believers, reminding the church that everybody has a share in the full participation of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and everybody has a share in representing Christ's sacrifice in and to the world. And so if the body of Christ lives at all in our world, then it lives in us. And so the faith of Jesus Christ is is never for the morally perfect or even the morally consistent, but it's for each broken and sinful one of us. And that's where the Beatitudes come in. Again, if we just read those scriptures or hear them, blessed are those, then if you're at all like me, we can tune those out almost immediately. (laughs) They're beautiful words. They look nice on posters and cross-stitched on pillows. But they have very little to do with those of us who struggle just to make it through another day in the real world. Biblical scholars differ on how the Beatitudes should be understood. Some suggest that Jesus was preaching during a time in which people really thought the end of the world was upon them. And so Jesus' preaching had a particular kind of urgency. And people felt like what he was describing was exactly what they were encountering as they, they looked forward to the ending of this world and the beginning of a new one. If that were true, then that especially explains the kind of radical nature of Jesus' words, and especially for the blessings for those who endure persecution. Other scholars, though, suggest that Jesus is, is laying out a basic standard for admission for anyone who might follow him. It's a scary idea if we think about it. If so, then the hurdle seems impossibly high. Does Jesus really mean for us to seek out these situations in which to look for God? We all have times of mourning in our lives. We, we grieve the loss of a family member, a spouse, a friend. We grieve the loss of a job or even the, the loss of another time. 
But is Jesus really suggesting that we seek out those opportunities of grief and mourning? Again, some in our world, too many in our world, experience religious persecution. Are we supposed to be like some of those martyrs we read and hear about who who seem to seek out punishment and persecution? I don't think so. I don't think that's at all what Jesus is doing here. I do think he's doing several things, though, in this beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. One thing Jesus is doing is simply talking about the way life is. How many in this room have have known tough times, whether because of your own health or someone else's or some situation, and just when it seemed like things were at their darkest and couldn't get any darker, someone appeared or God appeared. We don't look for those times. We don't welcome them. We don't hope for them. But But long after, sometimes, looking back, we can recall a a kind of closeness to God that was, was different from the ordinary. It was unusual, and it had in it God's blessing. Again, if anybody's ever really been hungry, whether it was through a circumstance that you had no power over, or whether it was even through voluntary fasting, then you'll know that in such a time, there can sometimes appear a a sort of fullness that's different from anything that's satisfied by food. It can be a fullness of fellowship with others who share in your situation. It can be a a fullness born of being dependent upon God. Again, unless it's a voluntary fast, this kind of hungering is never something we'd wish on ourselves or anyone else. And yet, when we reflect on it later, so often we can remember that God was there in some strange way, and so was God's blessing. Even more simply than Jesus simply pointing out the way life unfolds sometimes, I think Jesus is inviting us to see the world as he sees it. In some ways, to see the world from upside down. There have been heroes and and heroines of faith throughout the history of the church who saw the world from a a kind of upside-down point of view, Um, One of my favorites is St. Francis of Assisi. And when he began to experience God in a strange new way and began to feel the spirit kind of deepening his own conversion, he began to look for abandoned churches and sit in them and pray. And he, he went into caves to be alone and to pray and to listen for God, reflecting on that process that led Francis to see things differently. G.K. Chesterton writes, the, the man who went into the cave was not the man who came out again. In that sense, he was almost as different as if he were dead, as if he were a ghost or a blessed spirit. And the effects of this on his attitude towards the actual world were really as extravagant as any parallel can make them. He looked at the world as differently from others as if he had come out of that dark cave walking on his hands. 
That's what Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. What the world looks like if one is walking on one's hands. If one can see the world upside down. Jesus is saying that the wisdom of God, the life of God, the truth of God looks crazy to the world. It looks like madness. It looks like nonsense. And that's because the wisdom of the world is so crazy. Paul puts it clearly to the Corinthians when he says the message about the cross is foolishness to most of the world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus was thought to be a total fool by the religious leaders of his day. His followers have been thought foolish and naive and inefficient and idealistic ever since. Jesus gives us the Beatitudes, this list of blessings, as a a kind of foolishness that has within it the wisdom of God. He offers this list of blessings to us as invitations, I think, invitations for us to look and listen for God everywhere, but especially when we're in a rough place. Listen to them again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's not what our world tells us we should be doing Everything in our culture says we need to make more money. We need to build higher walls. We need to protect ourselves at all costs. We need to focus on charity at home first. On and on and on it goes. It's upside down. Paul says we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block. To those who are called, Christ is the power of God. The wisdom of God, for God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. The church has a wonderful long tradition of the holy fool. Sometimes it's someone who really seems out of their mind, kind of totally bonkers, but they they serve the role of helping the faithful see a deeper truth in piety and, and practice. In Tudor England, uh, a large house or a royal house would appoint the, the Lord of Misrule, who, whose job it was to create silliness and frivolity. The court jester comes from such a tradition. Perhaps we need a jester today to be, uh, to be wise with a foolish disguise so that foolishness can be seen for what it is. One of my favorite holy fools was way back in the 6th century. It was a a monk who would go into church each Sunday with a handful of nuts. And at the beginning of the liturgy, he'd start throwing the nuts at the candles. And then when people tried to chase him, he'd run around and he'd run up to the pulpit and he'd throw nuts at the people. And he'd, he'd dress up in clothes and he would eat sausage on Good Friday out in front of the church. He would do everything he could to question the church's practices to rile up the faithful and help them think about what they do as the church, what we do as followers of Jesus. 
The great early church preacher John Chrysostom places St. Paul himself in this category of holy fools. He points out that Paul himself we admire on this account, not for the dead he raised, nor for the lepers he cleansed, but because he said, if anyone is weak, do I not share in their weakness? If anyone is made to stumble, does my heart not blaze with indignation? Paul nowhere boasts of his own achievements where it is not relevant, but if he is forced to, he calls himself a fool. If he ever boasts, it's of weaknesses, of wrongs, of greatly sympathizing with those who are injured. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ show us that the life of faith always looks foolish to the world. If the church ever begins to be taken seriously, the church is probably not being who it should be called to be. It doesn't matter how large we are, how successful we look. It doesn't matter how smart or rich or even how holy we are. The key to knowing the risen Christ in our midst has to do with a kind of detachment, a lightness of being, the ability to take ourselves not too seriously, the gift of being able to laugh at ourselves, to laugh at the church, even to laugh at God. May we embrace holy foolishness, even if not especially in difficult times, so that we might arrive at that place of smiling quietly and inwardly as God's inside-out, upside-down kingdom of joy unfolds among us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.